anchoring our whole series. So, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Is there faith in the room today? Yeah. You ready for the word today? Yeah. All right. Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For learning wisdom and discipline, for understanding insightful sayings, for receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning, and let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Today, as we continue on in our series, Act a Fool, I want to speak to you from the subject, getting to know you. Getting to know you as we look at the character and the nature of wisdom and the areas of our lives that it impacts. Will you pray with me just one more time this morning? Jesus, we give you this space. It's yours. And I just pray right now that your word would be true in this moment to us, that we must decrease as you increase in us. And so, God, I pray that as your word is spoken today, that exactly that would happen, that self would decrease in all of us and that you would increase in all of us. So, God, may these be your words, not my words. I pray that I wouldn't speak today, but you would speak through me today. And God, we just honor you at this time. I thank you for this beautiful and amazing community of faith that has come together from all kinds of different places and spaces, backgrounds, ages, spaces, races. God, I thank you that we can all come together underneath one name, and that is the name of Jesus, the name which is above every other name to which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. We love you and we honor you in this place. In Jesus' mighty name, come on, and everybody shouted. Amen. Erica, my wife, and I have been married for 16 years, and uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, I'm now, like, starting that journey uh, of, like, starting to realize, like, oh, man, our, like, our marriage is getting uh, more mature. Let's put it that way. Um, and we're still very much getting to, getting to know each other. And the interesting thing is we started out on a journey at the beginning of the year um, that we've entitled for our lives Best by 40. Come on, somebody. And so we're like on a full regiment, like it's a health regiment, and uh, we're just digging into different things and all kinds of different goals and plans that we had that we set out at the, at the beginning of the year underneath the, the guise of best by 40. We want to be our best by 40. I want to be the healthiest I've been since 40. I want our marriage to be as strong as it's been by 40. Come on, somebody. So we've been going in this direction. But since doing this, uh, we've changed in so many different areas. And so there's, only, there's been these moments in our marriage recently where we've been getting to know each other again. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to like the day when we were like still dating. Uh, many of you aren't from the Pacific Northwest, but like I'll tell you a little bit of our journey in Seattle area that we, we lived in. Uh, I remember moments where we'd go to this little place called Sherry's. It was a little dive diner. And in, in our area of town, and we'd go there and we'd get like French fries. And uh, this is why we had to work on Best Buy 40, by the way. So... Um, <laughs> We'd get like Sundays and we would hang out. And then as we got a little bit older, like it escalated from Sherry's to like Red Robin, right? Like so, (laughs) 
And so it was burgers and fries, and we started going that direction. And it was always this, and, and I remember, I was thinking back to some of these, these times, sitting in these restaurants, getting to know my wife when we were 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. And, 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 and I was thinking about all these times where we've had like deep conversations, and we would talk about the things that were inside of us and, and our prayers and our hopes. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Like that's what, that's what you do when you get to know somebody, Right? And especially in dating relationships, let me help some of the daters out here. Like you're working right now, for those of you who are dating somebody, you're working right now to get to know the other person, aren't you? Like you're trying to dig in. Hopefully you're trying to get to know the other person. Please, in the name of Jesus, get to know the other person. Right? So you're working really hard. But here's something that I've come to realize about relationships that's really funny. Is that we have a tendency to work really hard to get to know the other person but many times we miss on trying to understand how that other person impacts us. So we can spend all of our time trying to get to know the other person, but I wanna encourage us, this is a little freebie before we get into relationships, but don't worry, I'm gonna twist it right now. I wanna encourage you to get to know how the other person impacts you. Because how many of you know relationships go two ways? There's what you think about the other person, but there's how that person impacts you, how they potentially change you, how they potentially make you angry or make you sad or how you, you see what I'm talking, how you interface with people. And it's the same with wisdom. The point that I'm trying to make today is that every good relationship is the product of spent time getting to know each other, but not just the knowledge of each other, but it's what makes them who they are and then how they impact you as well. And I've come to realize that there are a lot of people that don't do this with wisdom. The truth is, as we learn and develop knowledge of others, it is within the framework of relationship that we get to know the other person and understand how they impact us. And I wanna submit to us today that this is the relationship we must have with wisdom. Wisdom is not just the acquisition of knowledge, come on somebody, but it's how wisdom actually impacts our lives as well. So today I wanna to encourage us and I wanna submit to us today that wisdom is a relationship. Wisdom's a relationship to be fostered and built. Often throughout the book of Proverbs, we will see wisdom regarded as a unique person. In many cases, wisdom is regarded as a she, and that's not surprising as she's are usually more wise than he's. Let's just be honest. Just throwing that out there. Go to tribe. Um, so. So if you read, especially the book of Proverbs, you'll find Proverbs is often, or um, uh, wisdom is often regarded as a she. Is wisdom engendered? Of course not. The writer is using a figure of speech to personify the type of engagement we should have with wisdom. In this case, a relationship. By using terminology that personalizes wisdom, we are more apt to regard its importance in our lives. Come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? If wisdom is only seen as a product, then we take a more sterilized approach with it and therefore wisdom becomes more subjective, a more subjective consideration amongst the many other considerations we have for our lives. The writer of Proverbs is trying to establish the importance of wisdom by making wisdom a relationship rather than a service. A service we employ only when we deem it as needed. A relationship, on the other hand, is constantly nurtured. So what I wanna do is I wanna create like this relational space to exist with, with wisdom. 
Now, Proverbs chapter 7, verse 4 highlights this for us perfectly. Watch what it says. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your relative. So I want us to move out of this benign box that we can often put wisdom into and realize that wisdom is a relative. Wisdom is a unique person. It's something that we foster and we work with and we develop. We get to know it and it gets to know us and we get to understand and develop an understanding of how wisdom actually impacts our life. Other, in other words, there is a nature and a character to wisdom. Someone shout wisdom today. One author put it like this. Solomon used the literary tool of personification to extol, lots of big words here, to extol the inanimate and abstract idea of wisdom as if it were a real person. By doing so, Solomon communicated a vivid illustration of the blessings of being wise. In other words, look at it like this, we walk with wisdom. Wisdom's not just a system that we employ, but we walk with wisdom. We hold wisdom's hand. Right? In other words, Solomon was working to make sure that there was a very clear distinction made concerning wisdom and that she is necessary for all of our lives. So if wisdom is necessary and a much needed relationship in our lives, then we need to do the hard work of relational building. We need to get to know wisdom and understand the impact that wisdom has upon our lives. And in doing so, we begin the process of relational evaluation that gives the other part of the relationship validity, authority. Let me say this one more time. Validity, authority, and presence in our lives. What would our lives look like if wisdom had validity, authority, and presence? So come on, somebody. How many of you know we would maybe have missed some things that we otherwise fell into? if wisdom had some authority in our lives. So that's what I wanna do. I wanna get to know wisdom today. We're gonna look at the nature and character of wisdom. So four characteristics of biblical wisdom. Y'all ready? Come on, y'all ready? All right, here's here's the first characteristic of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is practical. Biblical wisdom is practical and therefore it impacts our daily decisions and choices. Biblical wisdom is practical and therefore it impacts our daily decisions and choices. Listen to James chapter three, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Here it is, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Conduct's a daily thing. The New American Commentary helps us with this idea. Listen to what it says. Wisdom includes the idea of common sense. (laughs) (laughs) which is not so common anymore. (laughs) Wisdom includes the idea of common sense and the ability, here it is right here. This is what wisdom helps with in a practical way. It has the ability to help us cope with the daily problems that we face and the occupational realities that we engage in. In other words, come on somebody, wisdom is practical. Wisdom's practical. The problem that so many of us face is that we don't see wisdom as practical. We we simply see it as as the accumulation of information. So we believe that if we know a lot, then we are wise. I know lots of people who know lots of things who are not so wise. Come on, am I talking to anybody? You're like, you're not talking to me, I'm super wise. What are you talking about? 
While, they have some, like, while, while there's some merit to having tons of information, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, wisdom is not just the gathering of knowledge and information, but it's the implementation of knowledge in a practical way. It's one thing to know something, it's another thing to take what you know and do something with what you know. Right? That is wisdom, it's, it's practical. And this truth of wisdom being practical fleshes out in every aspect of our lives. Every aspect, relationships, time, money, emotions, health, faith, vocation, communication. All of these have practical wisdom that is necessary if we wanna be a people that have, check this out, proficiency in life. We call it adulting. Come on, we could all get better at a little bit of adulting. And I'm talking to adults in here, right? It's I want proficiency in life. And wisdom is proficiency in life. How many of you would, say, would agree with me right now? Like you didn't wake up today and go, hey, you know, today I, I hope I do life bad. I really wanna jack it up today. Like I just like, I just wanna light it on fire and push it down a hill. No one said that today. Like we got up, even maybe you didn't vocalize it, but subconsciously you said to yourself, I, I wanna do life well. Like I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna win today. Like I don't wanna mess anything up. And I just wanna highlight for us that wisdom is the ability to have proficiency in life. Here's the thing. The reason that we struggle with wisdom being practical is because it tends to defy what we feel about something. Oh, everybody got quiet on me on that one. See, we're feeling-based individuals, and because of the natural default that we exist in, practical wisdom is a muscle that must be developed. We're gonna talk about feelings in the series because like right now, over the first three weeks, you've heard me bash feelings a lot. And, and, and there's a reason for that. I'm just trying to put some dents in it. Feelings are good. We, we, we are emotional people. We'll talk about our emotions later on in this series. But I need us to understand how many of you agree with me that wisdom has a tendency to defy my feelings, right? Like my feelings say 15 Oreos. Wisdom says one. Come on, that's just a practical aspect to it, right? At the beginning of COVID, our feelings said chickens and a dog. Wisdom said, get rid of the chickens, <laughs> which we did. Wisdom won, it prevailed. Now, now I need us to hear this. Biblical wisdom is not abstract and subjective. It is not outdated and irrelevant. It is not antiquated and out of touch. Rather, it is exactly what we need for our lives for such a moment as the one we are living in right now. And because wisdom is practical, it has a path for us when we are facing pressure and tension and fear and insecurity and uncertainty. Because wisdom is practical, there are tried and true realities to it that help us when our emotions and our feelings are all over the place due to what is happening around us. How many of you know what I'm talking about? They swirl. They go crazy, like our minds are all over the place, our hearts are all over the place, like everything is going on. And wisdom says, no, no, let me come in and I'll create some structure for you. You can actually make wise decisions even when everything is going crazy. Practical wisdom gives us the words to say when we are angry, hello. Practical wisdom teaches us how to think when we are tempted. Practical wisdom guides our actions when we don't know what to do. Practical wisdom informs our hearts when feelings flood our lives. The book of Proverbs is practical 
wisdom for life. Wisdom is wisdom for everyday life. So the first truth that we need to understand about wisdom is that biblical wisdom is practical in nature. Come on, somebody. Here's the second thing. Everybody shout number two. Here's the second characteristic of biblical wisdom is that biblical wisdom is intellectual. Biblical wisdom is intellectual, and therefore it impacts our critical thinking patterns and perceptions. Are you all with me today? 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. This is what the Bible tells us about Solomon. I love this piece of scripture. Watch what it says. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Could you imagine if that was written about you? Like he's so smart. Breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. That's amazing. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than, than Ethan the Ezraite, and Haman, Calcol, and Darba, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs, like hit songs, 1,005. Come on, that's awesome right there. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And here it is right here. And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. In other words, the Bible is saying this dude was smart. He knew some stuff. One of the greatest critiques being leveled against modern Christianity is, is that it's intellectually inept. That modern Christianity is void of intellectual character and integrity. And while I do not believe that this is true in terms of the full scope of modern Christianity, you can see how this assertion has some merit. But what we need to understand is that biblical wisdom is actually intellectual. In order to understand the Bible, in order to understand the nature of things, in order to engage in critical thinking, we think that we have to like get rid of all these. No, no, the Bible actually enables us and says that wisdom includes intellect. Smarts aren't bad. And that's what I love about 1 Kings chapter 4, 29 through 34, is that the wisdom of Solomon was not just seen as a spiritual endowment, but an intellectual strength as well. Here's the truth. This is like all my Bible college thrown into three words. Wisdom is smart. This means that wisdom is studied. To have wisdom in the areas of life that we need wisdom in, one needs to study those areas in relationship to God's word and design. If I need, if I, I need advice on my marriage, it's in here. Come on, if I need advice in relationships, it's, it's in here. If I need advice on the totality of my life, it's, it's in here. Now that's not to say, is this a scientific book in the terms like it's gonna explain all the idiosyncrasies of our universe? No, it's not. So we learn. But how many of you know in this cultural moment what we've tried to do is we've tried to pit science and math and all these other things against this word of faith right here. But thinkers in the past have always done what they've done and searched for this greatest reality that they knew in, in a faith scope is that there was something bigger and beyond us and his name was God. Wisdom is intellectual. We cannot be afraid to have to work through these things. It just means that we have to go deeper. Come on, church. So Paul's gonna tell us that it's intellectual in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses one through six. Watch what he says. He's dealing with a really jacked up church. 
And he says, if any of you have a dispute against one another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world and if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels and how much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you point as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate, arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother and what before unbelievers? In other words, what he's saying is that is there not a wise person in the room to be able to, when you simply have an argument, you can't figure it out with each other? Are we, are we intellectually debased is what he's asking. Now, this is a very nuanced piece of scripture dealing with what the church had going on, which was a lot of relational issues and so much more. But they were missing both practical wisdom and intellectual wisdom. So they were forced, here it is. This is what happens when, when we as Christ followers abdicate our responsibility to have practical wisdom and intellectual wisdom is that we then have to seek out the world's wisdom. Am I talking to anybody? And when we do that, the game changes. Everything changes. But that's not who we've been called to be. And because of this, the church at Corinth lost its witness in the world because they weren't seeing God move in the way that God moves through wisdom. So there's significant evidence scripturally to support the idea that God imputes wisdom into his people, but not to the exclusion of getting smart. Okay, can I be, can I be your pastor today? Every, no one said yes to that. They're like, nope, I know where you're going. That, oh, that's, always the, <laughs> that's always what you say before you're about to hit us with something. Okay, can I be your pastor today? We as the body of Christ need to get smarter as to how we engage with the world around us. You need to take five more minutes of study. You need to do five more minutes of research before we open up our mouths, come on somebody, or before we open up our fingers because we lose credibility when we are not intellectually engaged with wisdom. But Solomon was the person that everybody came to because there was something that he was operating in beyond the world's wisdom. And people said, I need to know what it is that you know. How do you know what it is that you know? And it was on behalf of God. There's so much that's being spewed right now and said right now and talked about right now when it's we should be what the Bible says, slow to speak. And I I think slow to speak is a very important thing. Why? Because when you are so slow to speak, it means maybe you are stopping to do a little bit of research. This past year has been the hardest leadership year of my life, if I can just be open with you as a church. It's been a hard year of leadership. And I've talked to a lot of pastors. Why? Because there was never a class in Bible college that taught you how to deal with a pandemic. No one said like Romans, Colossians, Pandemic 101. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. And how many of you agree with me? There's lots of opinions this year. Lots of thoughts. All kinds of things going around. So many decisions. I would walk into the office and I would just sit down and I would look at the wall because there was 85 different decisions that had to be made. And the minute you made the decision, somebody else changed something on you and then you had to relook at the decision. And then we all started to hate this word, pivot. Come on, how many of you have put pivot in the echelon of other four letter words? Pivot, you shut your mouth. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, I got violent during COVID apparently. You be quiet, you say pivot again. See, the truth is that this past year though, because of it, has caused me to dig deeper than I ever have as it pertains to the development of my cognitive wisdom and intellect. I'm reading things that I've never read before. I'm studying things that I've never studied before. I'm being mentored in ways that I've never been mentored before. Why? So I can develop intellectual wisdom. Why? Because wisdom's intellectual. You have to study, you gotta learn. I gotta, I gotta devour this thing. Devour, 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 just eat it up. And so many other things that I'm, now, ultimately, I know, I know the tension in the room. Well, does that mean that we get smarter uh, above what God Im- imputes into us? No, because at the end of the day, he will override so many things. But that doesn't give us the space to not get intellectually strengthened. Come on, am I, am I helping anybody out today? This is just one area of my life, so many different areas. So the next characteristic of biblical wisdom is that it's intellectual. Here's the third one. Every shout number three. three. Biblical wisdom is moral. Biblical wisdom is moral. Therefore, it impacts our ability to operate in self-control and ethic. We're going to school today. Not so much a preaching message as much as I need us to like teach a little bit. And then I said, we'll go practical starting, starting next week. Therefore, it impacts our ability to operate in self-control and ethic. James chapter three, verses 14 through 17 says this. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not, here it is, such wisdom does not come down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This is not, this is James. Started writing. Verse 16, for where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, Compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. Here, James acknowledges one of the most important identifiers of biblical wisdom. And it is biblical and therefore has a specific, because it's biblical, it has a specific ethic and moral fabric for one to be shaped by. Okay, I need a better amen than that on this one. Because wisdom is moral, it has a specific fabric and ethic to be shaped by. Amen. <laughs> Some of us are unsure. In their best-selling book, All Things Shining, philosophers Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Dorrance Kelly open up with a startling and sober assessment of the world. They write, the world doesn't matter to us the way it used to. The intense and meaningful lives of Homer's Greeks and the grand hierarchy of meaning that structured Dante's medieval Christian world stand in stark contrast to our secular age. The world used to be in its various forms a world of sacred shining things. The shining things now seem far away. Because of the secular age in which we live, Dreyfus and Kelly argue that it has and is becoming increasingly more difficult to find and live out a life of meaning. They argue, and I quote, listen to what they say, we modern humans are in an existential crisis. There's a word for this crisis, and that is nihilism, to which author and writer Jonathan Pennington would write, is the understanding that nothing really matters. It is the air we breathe in the modern secular age, and it is bad news for humanity. 
wisdom is moral. As the nihilistic, secularistic ethos and humanistic ethics continue to take hold in our culture and society, we begin to lose the framework necessary for the good life. We talked about that in week one. A life that is framed in by wisdom and more importantly, moral wisdom. When we lose the ability to find the meaning in life, then the value of life becomes meaningless. And therefore, how we treat one another and those lives don't matter anymore. Here's the question. How do we assess meaning to somebody's life if we believe that life is meaningless? If we take on a secular and humanistic mindset within the body of Christ and then we start shouting and clamoring for unity, it is an impossibility because unity is undermined by the strategic maker of the secular mindset. And therefore we start to believe that nothing is, about, there's no meaning, there's no value. So how can you assess value then to somebody? We can't say God is love but then believe nothing matters. Because if nothing matters, you don't matter. Jesus inserted into this equation shows us that everybody matters. And he gave his life for you and for me, why? Because you matter and I matter and we matter. And then he said he was gonna build this thing known as the church and he was gonna bring us together. Not a bunch of people who don't matter, but a bunch of people who do matter. And when we come together, we'll tell the world that they matter. See, without a valued assessment of life, we can no longer assess value to life. We then become the sum total of what we do not value rather than what we do value. Once again, Jonathan Pennington helps us out with a stark reality as he writes, humans today, especially in the West, live in a psychological space where the old structures, both pagan and Christian, have broken down and been replaced with a scientific understanding of the world. Watch what he says. This is crazy. This enables us to send a probe to Saturn but find it difficult to live meaningful lives. And while most people walking around aren't committed nihilists, this is more the felt experience of artists and philosophers. They struggle to find a comprehensive worldview that makes life meaningful. It's hard to be happy. If it weren't, we wouldn't have 577,000 mental health professionals, 15 million people suffering from depression, and a $10 billion industry of self-help books. That's just the United States alone. In other words, when we lose our moral compass that is found in and through biblical wisdom, we find ourselves on a path that has no meaning or substance. People then are simply the product of collected cellular mass protein particle and the universe's fatalistic design and humor. No wonder value can no longer be placed on humanity. And therefore, because of this, self becomes the highest authority and purpose for life. Am I talking to anybody today? Yeah. Now, here it comes. As Christians, wisdom-based living is the fundamental agreement that there is an authority greater than ourself. An authority greater than our emotional definition to what is decent, orderly, and morally acceptable. The question then becomes, how do I make wise decisions? 
Wise decision based on biblical wisdom would include that which we define as morally acceptable from an orthodox metaphysic. A metaphysic is this. What is the true nature of the universe and how does that, how does the world work? And then from an ethic, what is an ethic? It's what is right and how do we live it out? These are personally necessary for life, health, productivity, obedience, spiritual growth, and faith. I told you we're going to school today. Can we think deep today? We need to grab a hold of this stuff because what happens is we are in this tension point. It's an inflection point right now where we're going to decide, we're going to kind of just go the world's way. Nothing matters. Nothing, like I don't need to really care about anything. Or I'm going to go to this extreme and the only purpose for life is self. The existential crisis that we're facing right now as a society and as a culture and quite frankly as a global community is that we're trying to redefine what has already been defined. We are trying to do so underneath the guides of being progressive and intellectual. This is arrogance. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. Meaning that because we are living in a future calendar date than that of the advent of Christ and the canonization of his revealed word, we are somehow more intelligent and advanced. We're not. Just because we have the internet doesn't mean we got wiser. It seems like the internet has expedited our lack of wisdom. It just made it easier for everybody to know we're not wise. Before, you had to travel a distance to figure out that person's foolish. <laughs> right? You had to walk three days. Oh, man. Three days. Yep, still stupid. All right, so. <laughs> now, just. Yep, all right. This comes on a lot faster. The truth is that we're not operating from an advanced platform, but rather a debased one. One that centers all authoritative measures and definitions and ideologies and theologies off a self-centered metaphysic. In other words, our emotive-based cognition and preference has now become our greatest authority. And anything that rejects such a claim is oppressive. In other words, we have weaponized our individuality. Myself, because it's the highest authority in my life, is now more important than yourself. Oh, I can, <laughs> are you guys seeing where we can go with this? As long as myself is the greater authority, we need to stop talking about all other things. Do not talk about love in the world. Do not talk about hope in the world. Do not talk about advancing causes because if our self is the greatest authority, then no other self matters. This is why Jesus said in John 3.30, you need to decrease because I need to increase because where self increases, when self increases, the world gets dark. And the reason for this is sin. Jonathan Pennington, once again in his book, gives us a very great definition for sin. Sin, the inherent and active resistance to God that is in all of humanity, affects not only behavior, but also the mind itself, the capacity to reason consistently and humbly in pursuit of the good. We call this the noetic effect of sin. Sin, what, listen to this, sin is knowledge skewing. It obscures our ability 
to see the good. And we think it's just behavioral in nature. Now, sin blocks our ability to see the good.